Hello, loves. Welcome to Powerful Belonging with Lisa Havelstead. That's me. Today, we're talking about existential or what the fuck crisis 101. <laughs> so hang on. All right. This week has been pretty crazy for me. Um, I had a colonoscopy this week, a harbinger of <laughs> middle age, right? And you know, all of that went really well, and I'm so grateful it went well, and I'm really grateful that it's in my rear view mirror for a few years. Um, I've also been, ah, I have been in a bit of a scramble. I knew August and September were going to be more busy and needing more focus and more forbearance, but yeah, pre-knowledge and actual experiencing something are two very different things, as we all know. One thing that's really played into um, my whole experience is that we've been babysitting my brother's corgi while he and his family visit my sister-in-law's family in the Philippines, and um, we have her for a month. We've had her for a month. And her name is Dakota, and she's a diva. <laughs> she's used to being the star of the show. She's used to roughhousing with two little boys. And, you know, her and only her feelings and wants matter. That's what she's used to. So for almost um, a month now, she's been living with us, with Paul and I. And we have two senior small dogs, um, Isabella, who's 18. She's a Shih Tzu and she's blind and, you know, in her twilight years. And then Rico, who's a Pekingese and he's 12 and he is extraordinarily sensitive. And then we have two cats, John Mielkovich and Hermione, and they're both young um, and savvy to the ways of our home. But poor Dakota is not, you know, savvy to the ways of our home. Dakota, the diva corgi, has had a very steep learning curve. Um, she's had to discover boundaries, <laughs> like don't get in Rico's face. Stop trying to play with his toys. Play with your own. Um, stop trying to dominate him. Stop trying to herd poor blind Isabella back to her dog bed every time she gets up. And do not chase the cats. So boundaries are not Dakota's nature. And as she's gotten more comfortable with us over the weeks, she's... Um, increasingly pushing those boundaries, you know, really wanting to assert herself so that she can get back to being the onlyest diva and star of the show. But conditions, circumstances are not permissive to that, um, not in our house. And these weeks that she's lived with us have been challenging for everyone, you know, um, it's made all of us aware, you know, all of the dogs, the cats, Paul and I aware of our individual energies and how we all need to wield these energies in order to live safely and in, you know, some sense of harmony. And um, yeah, it's been stressy for Paul and I because our pets know the house rules and those rules really suit our pets. We're all acclimated to that. But when you get a visitor, a dog especially, or, you know, a pet who can't speak 
words um, and doesn't know the rules and they're trying to find their place by being themselves and seeing what works and what doesn't, there is some chaos. And honestly, I have to say that I feel for Dakota too. You know, one minute she's with her family in the family home and everything is normal and the next minute they leave, I come over, pick her up, take her to my house. Now she's got a whole new life and where do you even begin? So the reason I'm telling you about all of this is because this is such a good metaphor for what I'm talking about today, which is basically identity crisis, existential crisis, um, what I just call what the fuck crisis. It doesn't matter what you call it, right? So last week, I talked about being boiled alive, like the bean in the stew pot thinking it knows when it's cooked and the master cook saying, you don't know shit bean, get back down in there. And that cooking, that stewing, that boiling and roiling and being knocked back down again and again, these things are hallmarks of a period of an old identity sloughing off, you know, and the liminality of learning to let go of that identity, how to learn to be without it, and then the reformation, the formation of new identity. And We humans think that everything should be super linear, don't we? You know, I was thinking the other day, if I hear one more person talking about the seven stages of grief, um, seven stages or whatever the stages are, I'm going to beat them about the head and shoulders. (laughs) Because for one, those stages are not progressive. We don't go through one, leave it behind, go into the next, right? We enter experience and... um, and go back to all of these stages in in kind of a spiral pattern. And number two, those stages are being improperly used contextually. And um, just like the words cats, um, what is it, ketchup instead of catsup, and Kleenex instead of um, facial tissue, you know, they've they've just become an enculturated thing that we believe is just a thing. But Elizabeth Kubler Ross who originally um, defined these stages in her book um, that she, you know, it's a book from a long time ago, I don't remember when, maybe the 40s, and it was called On Death and Dying. And she talked about these stages being the basically archetypal experience of humans dealing with the fact of imminent death, with the fact of mortality. And then they just kind of got co-opted by... um, uh, I don't want to call it pop psychology, but basically popular psychology into these are the stages we go through progressively when we grieve. And all of that is kind of horseshit. But especially in the West, you know, we like our formulas so that we can use them as armor against hard experiences. And I don't say this with harsh judgment for anyone. Um, I'm no different, really. No one consciously chooses to suffer, and yet we all do. And whether we suffer in our circumstances or our suffering is from existential roots, meaning it's more internalized, it's identity-based, um, and that doesn't require a change in circumstances to happen, right? 
but it, it feels terrible. And we want to know that we will get through it alive. And here in the West, where we believe in things like, you know, the power of the individual, individualism, you know, that kind of Calvinistic, um, uh, you know, co- uh, I can't think of the word I want here, but colonized way of like the power of the individual and manifest destiny and all of that. Um, we tend to look to ourselves and to the logic, what we can understand to know that we will get through something alive rather than just trusting, which for a lot of us feels freaking terrifying. So I've kind of digressed here, but what I very much want you to hear is that we don't make linear progressions. Our progressions through life, through anything, including um, a what the fuck crisis, they're looping and spiraling and up and down and backward and forward. And they take as long as they take. And we can get help with something. And that help can help us clear the way to move more naturally through a progression. Because what we carry in us, all this guilt and remorse and old wounds and hurts and resentments and pain bodies, you know, those things most certainly can present barriers for us that can keep us stuck a lot longer than what is, um, you know, what we would quote unquote need to be. But even that, even those barriers, they are part of the progression. We need to, we're coming up against something old and unprocessed and struggling in it and reaching out for help or being able to help ourselves when possible, do the work to reconcile and integrate that old stuff, those old barriers. That is part of the progression also. And... (laughs) No one wants to hear that shit (laughs) because we're human and we don't enjoy liminal spaces. You know, uncertainty, the tentative, reaching out and feeling through and inching along because we don't have our feet under us completely yet. If any of you have watched the documentary, My Octopus Teacher, that moment when the octopus puts out a tentacle and feels the man's face, right? We don't like that shit. We don't want to have to do that. We don't want to have to take that kind of risk. We just want to know. And that is not how life works. But that is often how we try to, um, you know, how we think we should move through an identity, um, existential, what the fuck crisis. And we find ourselves getting knocked back into the pot until we don't. And our logic may tell us that everything is going wrong. We're doing it all wrong. And that is not the truth. So my first training as a coach was in um, cognitive behavioral style coaching in thought work, which is an excellent tool. I still use it today. I also have taught it to others for years. It is an excellent tool. Like even though I have multiple certifications and trainings since then, um, it wasn't, I didn't get those trainings to leave thought work behind. Our thoughts, our internalized beliefs, And our knee-jerk reaction thoughts that come from those internalized beliefs play a huge, huge role in our experience. I think that's obvious. 
But um, here's the thing, in order to totally invest in the efficacy of thought work and thought work only, we have to um, kind of suspend investment in other ways of human experiencing, like energetics and spirit and soul, inner compass and voice, inner child, inner family systems, depth psychology, shadow work, you know, not to mention um, archetypal things like astrology and myth and mysticism, right? And I, I think that we are seeing, um, probably because of all the shaking up that happened between 2020 and now and is still going on worldwide, um, we're seeing that straight cognitive behavioral style approaches have historically bypassed physiological and psychosomatics, right? The nervous system response, which is not dependent on cognitive processes alone. And also how trauma, how our individual bodies and nervous systems and psyches experience trauma, right? Because trauma isn't one thing. Um, how that impacts us and shapes our holistic experience as humans. And... It's also traditionally, I think, bypassed the significance of individual and collective experiencing in favor of the chosen cognitive experience, which basically assumes that as long as we can choose, as long as we're willing to choose what we will think, we will all have um, the same experience, which is to um, create the experience we want. <sighs> so... I think we are moving in a, you know, in a good direction here um, because we're starting to take some of these things that have not been in the forefront um, before into our consideration. But I also think that a lot of cognitive behavioral style adherents have had some difficulty reconciling all of this in a way that still, quote unquote, proves their bias toward cognitive approaches. And you know, we'll get there, maybe. In the meantime, there's a whole lot of patching together and co-opting and um, guesswork and super explaining, meaning apologetics going on, and just trying to get it figured out, right? That's part of our human process too, figuring shit out. So to sum all this up, the cognitive approach alone works super well for some people. Not everyone thinks alike or feels alike or experiences alike or has the same preferences, the same references, the same backgrounds, the same genetic makeup and history, and so on and so on, right? And to assert that everyone's experiencing is subject to the exact same principles, in my opinion, I just believe that's short-sighted and can be even toxic. That's my view. That's my experience. I'm just putting it out there. Um, the more academic approach adherents have, you know, often dismissed anything outside of the conscious cognitive as quote unquote woo, meaning extraneous and complicating, unnecessarily complicating to the experience of our lives. And, you know, maybe you do too. <laughs> Although I have the feeling that if you follow my stuff, that's not true of you. Um, because you know, I don't shy away from complications. Who says that um, we don't have to deal with complicated, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. So I don't subscribe to any of that. 
And I also am not going to dismiss other people's preferences because listen, we're human and we need to do what works. That's what's important to me. And I don't try to coerce others into territory that's foreign to them. I offer invitations. The people who are inclined come. Those who don't, aren't, they see other practitioners and listen to other practitioners, follow other teachers. And that's as it should be. So (laughs) we all go through identity shit. You know, whether we call it the um, river of misery, like Brooke Castillo has called it in the Life Coach School, or an identity crisis, or a midlife crisis, or an existential crisis, or what anybody calls it, a what-the-fuck crisis, it's all the same damn thing. And if you've ever been in a river, no matter how placid it might look in, um, you know, on the surface, there's a current. And sometimes we have to exert strength against the current to get back to shore or get to the other side. And that's if the river's width and current is compatible with our current level of strength and endurance, right? Which is, which shifts as well, right? Sometimes also we have to swim and float with the current. We have to surrender and let the river take us until we land in a spot where we can get our our feet under us again, or we can grab onto something and rest. And most often, I think it's both. It's, It's swimming against, it's going with. You know, we swim like crazy, and the current is also taking us. And we have to, you know, we have to let it sometimes to be able to rest and gather our strength again in order to swim some more. You know, and that's just a process. And also, there are rivers like grief, and there are many sources of grief, as you well know, you know, where the whole thing is about surrender and trusting that we'll be borne by the current to some sort of safety at some point. And I think that river is the river also of identity crisis in many ways. And even this sounds formulaic and linear, right? Like I find it hard too sometimes to transcend our Western enculturation to make perfect sense of everything. Because I think we as humans believe if we can only understand it, then we can master it. Then we're safe from that feeling of being swept away by something bigger than us. But, you know, listen, I don't think that's ever, ever the way things work totally. And if we don't want to become bad actors in life, meaning behaving and appearing as though we've got it all mastered and figured out all of the time, despite the fact that we don't, you know, basically being the the man behind the curtain and the Wizard of Oz, then, then we have to get good with being in the pot now and then. And at the very least, not telling ourselves that we shouldn't be and that if we are in the pot, it's because we're broken or we're lazy or we're not doing our work. Okay, come on. (laughs) So my purpose here today is to remind you and myself that as humans, we will have human experiences and human experience is made up of the understood and the wild unknown. Some of us like to live in suburbs or gated communities with big fences around us. And um, because that 
helps us think that we'll be safe from the intrusions of the wild. But um, yeah, <laughs> we know in our heart of hearts that that is not true in any way. You know, that's a thought error. Because the wild will get at us. And if right now you're experiencing the wild unknown, and I'm stealing the phrase wild unknown from my favorite series of tarot and archetypal oracle cards by Kim Kranz, Kimberly Kranz. Look them up. They're great. Um, I'm stealing that phrase wild unknown because it's fucking perfect to describe this. Like if you're there right now, you're like my brother's corgi, Dakota. You have an identity. It's what you've known. It's all you've known yourself as, whether you like that identity or not. Of course, you're going to want to hang on to it when you get on the back foot, you know, when when things go sideways or when you start waking up in the morning and going, what the fuck is happening to me? Right? So give yourselves a break, right? Losing sight of one's identity is an existentially and cognitively scary deal. If any of you have a loved one with Alzheimer's, you already get this. But identity shedding can and does happen throughout our lives, and especially if we strongly identify with who we are and have always been, (laughs) it can feel awful and terrifying. Like everything is going wrong and everything in the world is conspiring against you and you're going to die if you don't keep swimming like hell for either back to the shore you left from or toward the next shore. You're going to assert yourself over and over again. Can I be me in this? And you will get knocked back down into the pot many times. And I just realized that I am super mixing metaphors here, but you're following me, right? Right? You're going to keep trying to go back to that old identity, saying, this is who I am, and applying it to this new river. And you're going to get knocked loose from whatever you're hanging on to or from the pattern you're swimming in and be taken by the river again. That's what I'm saying. Um, And surrender, this is important, surrender is part of the process. Trust that you will be okay is part of the process and you can do that. I know we hate it as Westerners, as, um, you know, Americans, and I know there's people living in other countries, you know, countries other than the United States, but we have this Western enculturation that we need to control everything, you know, manifest destiny. We are the masters of it all. And so it can be really, really hard to believe that we can let go and trust. So again, give yourself a break here. Of course, it feels hard. I get that. But you can do it. Try letting go with one little finger today or unclench one toe and just breathe into that. You might be thinking that you'll drown, but the truth is that we drown when we fight the water, when we fight the current. Letting go, even if it's just one finger, one toe at a time, is a signal to the water to the universe, to to yourself that you will work with 
the river. You will work with what's happening and let it, let it do its work. And its work is to bring you to where you need to be, my sweet friends. (laughs) You might not know where that is, but the river does. And if you look, you'll find me in the river with you too. I'm the one holding a signal light for you. Um, I'm right there with you. I get this. I understand if this is what you're going through. You're not alone and you're going to be okay. And the river is working for you. So we'll talk more next week. Until then, I love you and you are safe. And I hope you trust. Bye, loves.